Previously on the Nature of My Game podcast. I'm hoping to speak with Emily Warren. Do the police know you're here? As I mentioned, the bobcats had blood spatter up against the side. It made me it made me believe that it was less likely that he had been caught up underneath. You mentioned animal attacks. What are the animals around? Anything that could possibly do this type of harm? This isn't exactly right, but if there were grizzly bears in this area, possibly a grizzly bear could do the type of damage that was done. I know, um, obviously from the information I was given, a bit about how she died, but I'm curious, you know, how she lived. She was the love of my life. Everyone who ever met her loved her. She was the nicest, most kind and gentle human that I've ever met. The injuries had to be human-made. And even that isn't a perfect description because it would take an extraordinary amount of anger, rage. Yeah, I think my instincts are saying that those storm cellar doors in the back are definitely where we want to end up. The books are the first thing that draw your eye, and so you walk over and look at them. One has the title Radioactivity and Geology, an account of the influence of radioactive energy on terrestrial history. And then the other one is called Radioactivity and its Measurement. Like I'm waiting to get sort of some weird information, something stranger must be afoot. Hellbend, California, May 10th, 2016. Sheriff's Deputy Lucas Andrazi was breathing heavily as he drove his patrol car along the highway that led from Independence to Hellbend. He had the radio on, but it was cutting in and out. The radio signals out here weren't very good, but he still kept it on, mostly to distract himself from his frustration. He sang under his breath, hoping to keep the anxiety that was building inside him at bay. Once I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely. It wasn't helping. Why had the feds decided to stick their nose in here? What did they care about a couple of deaths in the middle of nowhere? Didn't they have bigger fish to fry? The radio continued to scratch in and out, but he wasn't paying attention to it anymore. He thought back to when he had found the body of Lucille Mayer, and a chill ran down his spine. He had never seen anything like that before, and he had been horrified. In fact, he was still horrified just thinking about it. The way she had been torn apart, well, no amount of CSI had prepared him for seeing something like that in person. But he was a sheriff's deputy, dammit, and he had done his job. He thought back to taking the photos at the scene and was sure that he hadn't done as thorough a job as he should have. But who could blame him? It was getting dark, a woman had been mutilated, and he just wanted to get away. He saw the Welcome to Hellbend sign on the side of the road as he passed by and thought about turning down one of the side streets back to Clifford Potter's house. He had gone out there before, taking a look around like Sheriff Mann had asked him to. Nothing seemed that important, but maybe he had missed something. He hadn't looked that closely at anything, but there weren't any signs of struggle, and Clifford hadn't died there anyway. Lucas kept on driving, and even heard himself say out loud, No, I'm good at my job. I didn't miss anything. He didn't feel reassured, though. He looked out the window at the gas and sip, and saw Jarvis Green sitting outside in his wicker chair reading a book. He waved, but didn't stop. The next building he passed was Lucille and Emily's house, and as he did, he couldn't help but notice that there was another car parked in their driveway. He knew it wasn't their car. This was a road he passed down multiple times per week, and he knew what everybody in Hellbend drove. No, this was someone else. 
Lucas pulled his car into the dirt on the side of the road and made a U-turn, driving back toward the gas and sip. He pulled in, got out of his car, and pretended like he was getting gas, all the while keeping his eyes focused on Emily Warren's house and that car. Jarvis walked over to him and said something that Lucas barely registered and ignored. Jarvis, do you know who's over visiting Ms. Warren? Whose car is that? Oh, that? Yeah, he was just here. Name's Ben McKissick. Said he was a reporter from the New York Times. New York Times, eh? Lucas thought. Guess it's a good thing I'm here. Wouldn't want the feds to have missed that there's a reporter in town. And for the first time all morning, Lucas couldn't help but smile. of different genres of role-playing games um you know and i think at least some of the sarah at least has played a few different of uh, those genres i would think i would describe delta green as a thriller or a more like a crime novel than necessarily horror though you know obviously that that can come into play do you all like that genre like do you do you read thrillers do you like watch like that type of movie are you are you interested in that genre or I guess that type of show, TV show, like they're, you know, certainly crime TV shows. Thrillers, yes. Uh, horror, no. What do you think you like about thrillers that you don't like about horror? Uh, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm a, still like a 10-year-old kid inside who just, you know, reacts far too much to a jump scare or uh, <laughs> anything like that. I mean, really like the stuff that I should not be afraid of because it literally would not ever happen. Um, thrillers, I don't know. I guess it's just the, I'd like the payoff is usually so great, um, at the end. And I like, uh, I feel like they're a genre of movie or TV show that like treats their audience pretty smart. Um, like doesn't feed them things or, or like, you know, is, is okay keeping things from them or like letting them kind of fill in and, uh, do the piecing together while they're watching. Uh, and I like that, uh, that aspect of it. That's cool. I've never heard it described that way, but that makes me like more inclined to. Yeah. I feel like you're not a big thriller person, Sarah. I used to be like in high school. I used to watch a lot more of them. Like the village. I loved that movie. I still think it's really good. Actually. I, I know it's not like the scariest one out there, but the idea that it could fit in our world and like, you don't know that it's there, but no, I don't really read thrillers or mysteries. I feel like you're too. And this is, you know, I, this is coming from someone who loves reading mysteries and thrillers. I feel like you're a little too literary for, like, thrillers and mysteries. Is that is that fair? With my reading, I don't know. But I like being in them. I don't know. <laughs> you'd, prefer, you'd prefer a plotless book to, <laughs> to one that is more focused on plot. That's true, actually. Yeah, I do <laughs> prefer a, a book that's beautifully written and introspective but has no plot. Yeah. Um, I would I would say I'm generally a fan of thrillers. Um, I I probably watch more thrillers than I than I read, but 
Um, but I have been known to enjoy a thriller. And and my girlfriend uh, works predominantly on uh, audio thrillers, so she's definitely like the she's the she's the one. She's like a, a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of thrillers and like when I'm in reading ruts like I like I currently am in, I pretty much only read thrillers because like they're the ones that um, will kind of propel me through my reading rut. And I don't know if any of you use Goodreads, um, but you know, I, 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 I tend to use Goodreads to record what I read and I have very specific criteria for my thrillers in Goodreads. And I like I'm not somebody who gives really low ratings on Goodreads. Like I think I've given like one, two in the past like five years. But I want a thriller to be interesting to me throughout and kind mm. of get me at the end, right? Like you know, have some sort of like catch or twist or something that like shocks me. And so the baseline is three stars. And then if I enjoy reading it throughout, it's a four. Or if it gets me at the end, it's a four. And if it does both, it's a five. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very I'm very into thrillers and I have a very like, this is what I want out of my thriller. So I hope, and we'll see, I hope that this game kind of pulls that off because it really is, I think, meant to be, Delta Green, I think, is really meant to be a kind of slow burn game mm. and tell a slow burn type story. And I don't think everybody's always like, super into that but i find playing it that there that like the tension really does ramp up and you like kind of feel it in your chest um i don't know if that's the experience that you all have had so far it's at least a four (laughs) (laughs) no yeah i mean i think that's what's great about it too it's like they like they lure you in and like you get small pieces and small pieces and like i mean i feel like beck has said it a couple times like it they slam the cliffhangers on you or they um Like when the when something hits, it like really hits and it builds and it builds, and yeah, I don't know. You get like a get a little endorphin rush going, and yeah, no, I feel the same way. Yeah, the first half of the episode, I feel like I'm oh man, did I miss something? Like, is, should I have asked a different question when I was interviewing them? And like, but no, it's just that there's not that much information yet, but soon it will come flooding in. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you may not even think about any information that you missed because you're just you know fending for your life. So. Um, We'll see. We'll see if that happens. We'll see what happens. Maybe nothing weird is going on here at all, and you'll just be able to report back. Yeah, like nothing wrong. It's all good. Everything's sure. Fine. <laughs> all right. So picking back up, um, it's uh, it's near the end of the. It's it's getting nearer to the end of the first day of this investigation uh, into two uh, similar and somewhat mysterious deaths in the very tiny town of Hellbend, California. Portia Marks and Sonny Lau, uh, our two FBI consultants, are currently in the house of Clifford Potter, uh, who was the first of two victims. And they have um, they have found the, the house to be pretty sparsely appointed. Uh, everything is kind of very neatly organized, uh, though there's not much, you know, not really any artwork on the walls or anything like that, not a lot of furniture. Uh, but in the kitchen, they've found some interesting things, and we'll we'll get to that in a second. Ben McKissick, our New York Times reporter who works for Delta Green as almost a disinformation broker. Um, that's kind of his special skill set, especially with Delta Green, is being able to to tell the story that removes any of the unnatural and any of Delta Green's in- involvement from the situation. He arrived in Hellbend early, had a couple conversations, um, with some relevant people in the case, Jarvis Green, who's the uh, 
the proprietor of the local gas and sip, who was the one who found Clifford, Clifford Potter's body, um, and whose grandfather is also the owner of the gas and sip and used to work for the, the, the now destroyed Hunt electrodynamics plant. Um, and Ben has an interview set up uh, the following morning with Montgomery Green, the grandfather, who is 98 years old. And Ben also talked with uh, Emily Warren, the uh, partner of uh, Lucille Mayer, the other victim, um, and got a little bit of information from her about what Lucille was like. And now he is um, at the Furnace Creek Ranch, which is a retiree resort, but also the only place uh, anywhere near Hellbend that has a motel. Uh, so we're gonna start gonna start this section of our story in the house of Clifford Potter uh, with Portia and and with Sonny. Um, so uh, Sonny was kind of looking around um, in the the bathroom and the bedroom, didn't really find much of note. Still very very sparse furniture and, and decoration. Uh, but Portia went into the kitchen and found a few interesting things. Uh, specifically, there were things on the table, and it's the only really place in the house that you've seen where there were things left out. But there's a pair of gloves that have red dirt on them. There's two books that you you notice the titles both deal with radioactivity of some sort. There is a notepad, uh, a hand-drawn map, and then a boombox uh, that has a cassette player in it and a series of cassette tapes. So Portia, let's we'll, we'll we'll start focused in on you. Uh, so you see all these things. What's your reaction to that? I definitely want to take it take it with us if we can. Um, I'm thinking. I know Ben said or Ben learned that um, Potter had been doing interviews and taping them. So I'm wondering if that's what these tapes are. Um, and I definitely would like to you know take the notebook and read through it or the notepad. All right. Are you looking more closely at anything at this point? Um, probably the, the notepad and the map catch my attention for sure. Sure. So you start with the map. It's not very clear immediately what this is a map of. Um, but the thing that is obvious right away is that, um, assumably Clifford Potter is the one who drew this map, um, since it's sitting on his dining room table. Mm -hmm. And it looks like very carefully done. Um, you know, the lines look like they were done in a very particular straight way. And you look at it, it looks like it's showing like roads or passages or something like that from a bird's eye view. So like from, from up above, all surrounding a large central circular location of some sort. And, you know, part of what makes you think that it's so precise is that there are measurements. There are measurements written next to some of these like roads or passages or whatever they are of both distance and like angles um, and of where they connect. Sorry to interrupt. One of the books was Radioactivity and Its Measurements, correct? That is correct, yes. One of the books was called Radioactivity and Its Measurement. The other one was Radioactivity and Geology, an account of the influence of radioactive energy on terrestrial history. And so, yeah, so there are, the, there are measurements and like angle, like degree measurements on, on the map. But it's not labeled, so you don't act, you have no sense of what this is actually a map of. And then you kind of start leafing through the notepad. There's tons of writing in the notepad. The notepad is super battered and waterlogged, though it's it's dry now. But like it looks like it 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 has been in water um, at some point or has gotten wet at some point. And there's 
literally all of the pages are just filled with notes. Um, very few of them are legible. You would really have to take some time, I think, to, to dig in to try to, to notice anything specific. But also, like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of organization to the notes either. Like, stuff is written in margins and all over the place. But one thing that you do notice is that um, a lot of the notes appear to be measurements as well. So there's lots of numbers with kind of like shorthand um, notation for of like symbols of like what the numbers represent. And then as you're leafing through, the last thing you notice, unless you really dig in more deeply, is the very last page has a simple drawing of what looks like a, a, a pool with sockets on the border surrounding it. Um, and there are like wavy lines drawn in the center of it, which is what makes you think it's a pool. Like the wavy lines kind of look like a symbol for water. Um, and then there are sockets on the side, like around the border of the pool. Um, I would say at this point, Sunny, you probably have done your quick look through of the bathroom and bedroom and probably walk into the kitchen as well and see that Portia is looking at this stuff. Yeah, I'd definitely call Sunny over and say, like, come take a look at this. Um, what do you think? Or just, you know, sharing the findings. Yeah. I think, I mean, one, just glad to finally find something, thinking that maybe this, uh, the adventure over to the house is going to be, you know, fruitless, not have anything based on the, the living room and bedroom. Um, and, I mean, I think the the books, at least, first, the radioactivity and the, uh, uh, with the geology and, and measurements, um, sort of maybe lines up with what we've been hearing about um, about Potter being someone who was spending a lot of time out in the desert, whether he was like salvaging for, what was it, uh, scrap metal um, or something like that. It That seems to maybe check out, but um, yeah, I don't know. What are you thinking? Yeah, something weird's going on. I think we should take all this stuff with us. I think we should go through the tapes and listen to them um, at a different location with more time. But yeah, definitely, maybe go like put everything in the car and then go check out the cellar. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, if we're gonna go into the, when we're going downstairs into the, the cellar doors, we wanna, yeah, just, I don't know, be ready for anything down there um, and have as little things with us as possible. Make sure your weapon hands are free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what time is it? Is it dark out? It's it's getting it's getting darker, but it's not it's not sun has not set yet. But yeah, I like that. We let's go take everything back. I think things are these are things that uh, Ben will definitely want to see as well before definitely. talking with the grandfather tomorrow. So let's make sure they're they're safe and protected before before we head down. Unless you want to search the, the kitchen a bit more. No, I don't think so. I am thinking ahead to going down into the cellar and like being safe from radioactivity. Do, do we have anything with us that would, you know, those things you wear at the dentist or something? I think you wear at the dentist. You probably do not have a, uh, a metal-lined vest, no. Okay, guess we'll just risk it. But I'm sure we, we have we have some uh, a bit more uh, gear, at least, yeah. in, the, in the car, whether that's uh, weapons or it's like just protection. Yeah, you probably have, there are probably bullet, like, body armor um, in the car, um, so you could put that on if you wanted to, and you probably were both carrying a sidearm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there is, there is, um, there is some heavier weaponry um, in the car as well. So as you're collecting the stuff to take into, uh, to load up in the car, you notice just a couple other things, just kind of as you're loading stuff up. Mm. Um, 
The gloves, when you pick them up, are quite heavy. These are gloves that are covered in red dust, you said, right? Yeah, red, red dirt, yep. Um, red dirt, okay. Could you both make me an intelligence check? Um, so that's a, it's, it's intelligence times five, which is something you should be able to click on, on, on your character sheet. All right. So you both succeed. So, um, you know, you pick up these gloves, they're a little heavy. You're kind of putting it together with some other, you know, some of the other things that are here. You think these are lead lined gloves that, you know, could, you know, similar to the, similar to the thing about the, the, the vest from the dentist's office. (laughs) <laughs> These could potentially protect you from, at least protect your hands from some sort of radiation. Like okay. they're used by, they're used by like x-ray technicians and things like that. Not, you know, not high levels of radiation, but, you know, low levels of radiation. These could potentially protect you from, at least your hands. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah, Portia, if you want to take them with us when we go down more than yeah, time why to, not? to let you do that. do that. Unless there's multiple pairs, but sure. it doesn't sound like there is. Yeah, there's just the one pair. And then the I guess the other thing you notice is... Um, just as you're carrying out the cassette tapes, they all have a, a label on the outside. They're all mm-hmm. labeled um, Monty Int, Monty I-N-T period. And then they have a number next to them. Seems to be, you know, some sort of like, you know, chronological in the order that the tapes will record it. But they all say Monty Int and then a number. All right. So you two carry this stuff out to the car. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, at Furnace Creek Ranch, Ben, you are... Um, you know, you, you had a few conversations with some of the locals in Hellbend. You went back to the ranch. You, you got a hotel room at the motel there. And, you know, you had a little bit of a check-in call with your partners who said that they were going to go check out uh, the Potter House before coming back to Furnace Creek. Um, how are you spending your time there? Other than golfing, of course, which we, we already established. You, you, played a, you played a quick nine holes while you were out there. Yeah. Um, you know, came back, uh, uh, took a shower, you know... Uh, uh, kind of kind of settling in um for the night and uh and as i discussed uh in my call with Portia and sunny i really wanted to do some research on um on electrodynamics and and um the kind of the the history of the company um you know kind of what happened uh that that led up to the explosion what happened um you know, afterwards, um, that kind of, you know, took the site to where it is today. Um, so I, I, I don't know, um, you know, what else I was able to, uh, to find, uh, find out about, uh, about Hunt. Yeah. So with just a little bit of kind of internet research, you're able to find a decent amount of information about Hunt Electronics, which is a, a currently operating electronics company. Um, so yeah, so you you start digging in. Um, so Hunt Electrodynamics was founded by a man named Arthur Hunt, kind of celebrated as a genius um, who was from rural Ohio. Uh, he he started the company in 1926, um, and within his the first year of operation, he had patented three significant patents and had already by that point within the first year of operation started to really make some money. And by the time uh, radio and rural electrification had swept the nation, Hunt was already kind of head of the pack because of um, some of these patents that he had, um, he had secured. And the Hunt resistor uh, was a standard electrical component um, in nearly every radio produced between 1933 and 1949. 
And so, you know, it was it was these patents and specifically the one for the, the Hunt Resistor that um, kind of lauded him as a genius and someone who was ahead of his time in some of the thinking around um, this technology. So then as, as World War II approached, Hunt Electrodynamic revenues exploded and the company grew to a huge proportions. By 1945, it employed nearly a thousand people across the U.S., and again, another thing that people um, note when talking about the genius of Arthur Hunt is that um, he expanded his business into home devices such as washing machines, refrigerators, and freezers, as well as electric ovens. Um, and so by 1948, uh, Hunt was the second largest producer of, of, that, of such items behind Westinghouse. But you also, as you dig a little deeper, find that there were some, some weird decisions that Arthur Hunt made with his business. First of all, it never went public. Um, it was always and actually remains to this day privately owned. Though it, and, and this was mentioned to others before, but though it was um, though it did have large offices in both LA and New York, Hunt ran the business from the Hunt Electrodynamics plant. He constructed um, at great expense in Hellbend, which you know many people note in, in in the articles that you find is one of the most inhospitable places on the planet in, in Death Valley National Park, uh, where he built this plant. And that's where he kind of ran the company for his entire career. He was subject to some scrutiny because of some odd behavior. It, you see references to him being not a very nice person, um, that he didn't really get along with anyone. He was a, a legendary recluse, didn't go out much, didn't see people really, um, even though he was kind of the, the reason behind the people that lived in the town. And kind of over the last decade of his life, kind of vaguely referred to the work that he was doing on a device that he always said would change the face of the Earth. And so then you find an article about um, the explosion that happened in August of 1952 that killed Arthur Hunt um, and demolished the Hellbend plant. Reports from the time, witnesses say that the the plant uh, seemed to fold in on itself as the earth swallowed it whole um, and nothing salvageable remained. And so, um, you know, you've heard people talk about the ruins of the plant. It sounds like um, it became ruined very quickly as part of whatever this explosion was. So digging a little further into what happened to Hunt Electrodynamics after that, uh, it, it seems that Hunt's right-hand man, a man named uh, Thompson McAfee, uh, assumed control of the company, purchasing Hunt's privately held stock from his estate at, at an enormous sum. Uh, he renamed the company Hunt Electronics. Uh, he shifted its headquarters to Washington, D.C. and shifted the focus of Hunt Electronics to uh, military contracts. Beginning in, in September 1955, Hunt Electronics became a primary source of electronic components for the U.S. Air Force. Uh, and the company's star continued to rise along with the arc of the Cold War, and its revenues and workforce continued to explode. In 1977, Thompson McAfee handed over the reins to a man named William Lassiter. Lassiter moved Hunt Electronics then into the realm of home computing. Uh, and by 1990, the move proved sound, and Hunt became a premier producer of computer equipment and components. And so, you know, kind of as the Cold War shriveled, Hunt had restructured itself to meet the demands of the new market again. So this is kind of the third or fourth shift in the path of the company that has seemed, um, you know, particularly prescient 
of the leader of the company to kind of shift paths before before and in anticipation of a shift in the world and the market. And so the company remains an anomaly. Uh, it's still privately held. William Lasseter, much like Arthur Hunt, is a recluse. And yeah, that's about all that you can find out about it. Okay. That's all uh, very useful information. Uh, something, uh, something definitely seems afoot. Yeah, what do you think, what do you think Ben thinks about all this? Like, are there any theories running through his head? Like, what's kind of going on in his mind? Ben's done uh, some some reporting in the past on um, kind of uh, military technology, um, you know, people people claiming that they've seen, you know, like supersonic aircraft, UFOs, like things like that. So um, I think the, the company kind of uh, becoming this this primary supplier for the Air Force um, kind of sticks out to him a bit. Like, you know, that, that, that there's some sort of, like, military technology tie-in there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are there any other kind of paths that you want to look down in terms of research? Or, I mean, that, you know, that, that takes up, you know, that's probably the result of a couple hours worth of research. Yeah, no, that I think that gives me a good um, a good base of knowledge. I, I want to know, you know, more about the company, um, you know, before I went and uh, and spoke with Montgomery. So uh, I feel like I have a pretty good base of knowledge now. Cool. All right. So as you're doing that research, um, our two other agents are dropping um, this evidence off in in their vehicle and uh, heading back to the root cellar. Um, so you do have. Um, you you do have um, tactical body armor uh, that was supplied to you, um, like a Kevlar vest and a and a, a Kevlar helmet um, for each of you if you want it. There are two rifles um, that you could uh, take out of their cases and assemble and load up uh, to bring in with you. Um, if you did both of those things, you know you really you both would look kind of like outfitted for like a SWAT team. Um, so you know that's up to you whether you how how, how nervous you are about heading into this root cellar, um, but that's, that is what's available to you. There's also, as it's getting a little bit darker, there's a flashlight available for both of you as well. I, I would say making sure we have flashlights with us. I don't think we need the Kevlar helmets, uh, but Kevlar vests maybe wouldn't hurt. But then probably just our, our handguns that we're already carrying uh, is sufficient, I would say, uh, unless Agent Marks feels different. I am cool with that. I'll probably bring the helmet with me, but just carry it. But you know, we're going under the ground. I'm gonna bring it with me. Sure. We we may we may never come out. So <laughs> we don't know. We may never actually meet up with Ben ever again. Yeah, we should have given that daily update to um, our handler earlier. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, what could I don't know what you could possibly be paranoid about. Yeah, actually, before we go in there, I mean, I still want to go in, but. I am wondering if this circular area is around the cellar. If there's a weird pool under there, I don't know from the maps. Definitely could be. So you don't. I, see, yeah, you don't see anything like that. Um, um, you know, up above ground, but that doesn't mean that that's yeah that th- that it doesn't fit something that you might find underneath. Not ruled it out. And those and the gloves that we found as well. Make sure we're bringing those. Yeah, that's that's actually what I was going to bring up. So, Portia, if you. You, let me know whether you're putting the gloves on or not, because the gloves will make it harder to 
use your weapon if you decide to. No, I think I probably have like the helmet hanging upside down and maybe the gloves in it, and I'm just carrying that in my left hand. Okay, sounds good. So you head around the back of the house um, to where the root cellar is, and looking a little closer, you see a couple of things. It looks um, hand-dug um, to you. It doesn't look like it was professionally done, necessarily. Um, I don't mean this. I don't mean hand dug like somebody took a shovel and dug it out. But it doesn't look. It doesn't look like professional work. It was look. It looks like it was kind of a, a homemade root cellar. But let me. You know, looks looks competently done, and it looks freshly dug as well. The, you know, you can you can tell by the the difference in the dirt around where the cellar doors are, um, compared to the grass and the, um, the grass and the dirt in the yard, that it looks like it was done relatively recently like not not like within the past two weeks but like you know maybe sometime i mean sometime over the past half a year um and the doors are closed that's weird but uh right what have you been up to clifford do the do the doors appear to be are there 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 doors to the cellar i'm assuming you mentioned yeah it's like a it's like a storm cellar yeah Mm-hmm. Like you, that you would see, like it, you know, external to the house in the back in the back of a house. So yeah, there's there's two storm doors. Sure. Do they uh, are are they locked in any way, or is uh, entering a pretty simple thing for us? Uh, they are not locked, or you don't see a padlock at least. Okay. Then I think you know this is what we came here for. So we're gonna try and open them up and head down there. All right. So you um. Do you do you have your weapons drawn, or still in your holster? Let's say, uh, sort of, you know, the the, the toggle of the the flashlight and, and gun drawn. Maybe at least one of us does while the other one opens the door. Yeah, my my gun is not drawn. I'm I have you know the helmet and stuff in my left hand, and you know a hand ready to grab something if I need to, but I don't have anything drawn. All right. So Agent Lau has his has his his pistol drawn and his flashlight out, um, and is kind of holding it toward the door, while Agent Marks um, opens up one of the cellar doors. Um, so you you sh- you shine the flashlight in, Sunny, and you see it's not a very big space. It goes down about four meters, so you know 12, 12 feet or so. There's a set of slate steps leading down into the cellar. Um, and you kind of shine your light around. It doesn't look like it's any bigger than, you know, like 10 or 12 feet by 10 or 12 feet. Uh, but it's hard to see much more down there in, in, unless you were to, like, you know, go down the steps at least a little bit. Sure. Um, I think it doesn't maybe look like much yet, but I think we want to get further in there. So I'll, as, as Agent Marks is holding open the door, I'll take lead, I guess, then, and, and go down those those slate steps uh, with the flashlight. All right. So Sorry. as you get closer down, at first glance, it seems almost entirely empty. And you're kind of shining your light around the corners of the, of the cellar. There's still a little bit of light trickling in from outside. And you notice a couple things um, right off the bat as you're looking around. There seem, there's a the only thing in there that you can see now that you've looked in all the corners is there's a rake and a shovel propped up in one of the corners of the cellar. And then as you kind of scan the ground, 
you see that it is the the ground is dirt. There was no cement or anything poured down there. The the, the ground is all dirt, and it's all very carefully raked. So, my thought then, seeing that, is that maybe Clifford was planting something down here or growing something. If he's digging holes, maybe, and then having to rake over it, I don't know. But maybe something under the nicely raked dirt. Like, it looks like a like a zen garden? Yeah, almost. Like, grooves yeah. from the rake? Yeah. Can we step around that? Is there any dirt on the side that's not raked? No, so all of the dirt is raked, but why don't you both give me a search check? Sure. And I would say, uh, whoever's doing the searching maybe wants to put on those gloves that we have from inside. Are we searching with our hands? Or we're just looking? Not necessarily. At this point, I think you're just looking. When you tell me you want to search with your hands, you can do that. Okay. Can I do, like, an awareness check? Alertness or something? (laughs) Instead? Search check, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah's is a failure. 86 over 20. Yeah. Um, but Nyx is a success. Five under forty. Oh yes. So so uh, so Sunny, as you're as you're looking around, you do notice that there are a few footprints. You didn't see them at first because you were you know you the first thing you noticed was that everything seemed to be raked. But it does seem that there are a few footprints that lead from the stairs to the center, like the dead center of the of the cellar, and then over to the rake. Okay. Um, seems like maybe reach, I would want to retrace those footsteps then, kind of follow them to the middle and I guess to the rake. Sure, you can do that. And you do notice as you're like walking along uh, the footsteps that it seems like only one set of footprints, right? It's, it's, it's only one shoe style, only one print style. So it doesn't seem like there have been multiple people down here recently. You get to the middle, you don't notice anything in particular um, in the middle of the the room, and then you walk over to where the rake and the shovel are sitting. They both look like they have dirt on them. Is this the same red dirt that's on those gloves? It looks to be, yes. So I think my my instincts are, are still the same if these footprints are leading to the center and then leading to the rake and shovel that more than likely this person was only going back and forth from the, from the middle to where the rake was so that they maybe were digging something in the middle and then raking this, uh, you know, nice patterned uh, Zen garden-esque uh, dirt around that. So I think I would want to ask uh, Agent Marks for the gloves uh, that we brought with us and then bring the the shovel and rake with me back to the middle of the, the cellar. Okay. Wait, there there are not footsteps back from where the rake is back to the steps? There are no, like, footprints leading out? No, 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 no. There, there are. They just, they go from the stairs to the center to the rake and shovel back to the center to the stairs. Back out. Okay. Yeah. But it's just, it's one, yeah, it's only one, it's only one set of prints. Okay. And just in an abundance of caution, I'm going to start just recording on my phone. Okay, cool. Like video and audio. Take some pictures of, you know, of the lines right. before, as we're walking, before we're walking, all those kind of things. Right, no, that's a good idea. Yeah, so I would say if I have the, the gloves from, from Agent Marks 
and then I have the the shovel and rake with me in the center that some sort of digging or, or searching around in the dirt is necessary. Yeah, and I'm gonna stay near the door, like so that I could, you know, if the wind was blowing, I could like keep it from close. Like we're not gonna get stuck in there. I will stay kind of watching, like up the steps a little bit, but still inside. Yeah, yeah. Ag- Agent Marks has watched plenty of horror movies. Yes. Yeah, I'm like we're not getting trapped in here, no. All right, so I, I do. So I do have to ask, Agent uh, Agent Lau, if you're gonna dig, you gotta have free hands, and so. What's happening with the with the gun and the and the flashlight? Uh, I'm thinking we're we're holstering my gun. Uh, maybe I would recommend for Agent Marks to at least unholster their weapon, um, sure. and then the flashlight. Uh, I guess you know we're doing the whole like flashlight in the mouth kind of thing to to point it at where we're digging. Cool. All right, so you start to dig around, you know, you, you kind of rake around first just to see if there's anything just under the surface. doesn't really reveal anything, and so you pull out the shovel and you start to to actually dig a little more actively in this area. Um, and it takes you very little time to come across something buried about a foot underneath the center of... a foot underneath the center of the cellar. The first thing you notice, it looks like kind of the corner of uh, a large Ziploc bag is the, the first thing that you uncover that's kind of like just the corner of it is sticking up out of the dirt about a foot below kind of where the rest of the surface was. I think I've asked um, Sonny to sort of narrate what he's doing to me. Like I, I've said, like, continually talk and tell me what you're seeing. So I, I know what it is you're Sure, seeing. I think, yeah, once I see the bag uh, or the corner of the bag, at least, maybe uh, we're, you know, we're going to try and be as delicate as possible. Um so maybe we put down the shovel and start digging with just the gloves. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's pretty easy to kind of dig around and pull this bag out. And it's a large black bag, you know, kind of like a gallon-sized bag. And inside there is a, a cube of, it looks gold to you. You know, it's, it's a perfectly square cube. It's about seven centimeters um, on either side, so about two inches on either side, and you're not sure. Obviously, you you um, you're not a you're not a uh, gemologist or anything like that. But like, it weighs about what you think a cube of solid gold of its size would weigh, and it looks like it's been precisely machined. It's got these kind of like nicely rounded corners, almost like a di- uh, like a a die. And it has a slight curve on the inner faces, and there are strange icons carved into each face. Do either of you have any um, knowledges about, like, the value of... Or do you have any, like, skills that you want to argue, like, what the value of gold is? Also, I would just take an intelligence check from both of you. I guess I do have 40 in accounting and 40 in anthropology. Uh, I'm not sure if those things together mean I have knowledge of uh, the price of certain things, uh, like gold, but potentially. Or can do an intelligence check. I have a 30 in occult, if that's helpful. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll say we'll say that, um, that Sunny, you can make an intelligence check um, based on some of your skill in those other areas. Okay. Alright, that's a 19 under 70. Um, which is pretty good. So, you know, 
you're again, you're no expert. Um, this is not a precise science for you, but you think for the gold alone, this much gold, if this thing really is solid gold, it's probably worth two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a significant chunk of gold. Wow. And so you're, you're, you're a little fascinated, honestly, by, by this thing. And so you almost don't notice. Uh, but you do look down and notice that there actually is something else. There is something else buried next to the bag. It looks like a glass jar to you, um, just from the little bit that's kind of that's kind of revealed uh, in the dirt. Sure. So um, I guess I'm gonna have Agent Mark stay where they are again to you know be looking for uh, the door. And I mean, despite being far away from town, you know, we're finding some pretty. Uh, auspicious stuff and don't know if anyone else has been checking around here so maybe just to be looking out for, for other people um so i'll just put i'll leave the the cube in the bag and place it down and then go to examine the jar all right so you kind of have to you have to dig a little bit with your hands again to get the jar free and what you see honestly is is pretty shocking to you inside the jar it, it looks like it's filled with a thick clear liquid and floating in the liquid is a huge dragonfly or a huge insect that looks like a dragonfly maybe 30 inches from tip to tail I mean just absolutely massive Um, it's curled in like a a death position kind of rolled up in a spiral do either of you have well first of all do either of you have any training in forensics or medicine Yes. Sorry, I'm pulling up my forensics is, I believe, a 40. And I have a 20 in forensics, but nothing in medicine. All right, so both of you would know instantly that the liquid inside is formalin, um, which is kind of like formaldehyde. It's It's a preservative. And then I believe that both of you have at least 20% in either archaeology or anthropology, correct? Yes, a 40 in anthropology. All right. So both of you recognize this creature um, from your from your archaeological and anthropological um, training. Maybe maybe you read about it. You know, maybe it was something you studied in college. I don't know. But you both recognize this as what is thought to be the largest insect to ever have existed. Um, a Meganura dragonfly. The problem with this, of course, is that the Meganura dragonfly lived in the Carboniferous period, which was about 300 million years ago. But this sample looks as fresh as if it were killed yesterday. And that's where we're going to end our story for today. This podcast was published by Arrangement with the Delta Green Partnership. The intellectual property known as Delta Green is a trademark and copyright owned by the Delta Green Partnership, who has licensed its use here. The scenario Future Perfect is copyright Dennis Detwiller, and the contents of this podcast are copyright Nature of My Game podcast, accepting those elements that are the components of the Delta Green intellectual property. Our intro music was composed and produced by Jean-Luc Bouchard. You can find more information about the Nature of My Game podcast at NOMG Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, 
or at nomgpodcast.com.